Well, hey, everybody, this is Marty Duran with Uncommentary, and it's Sunday afternoon, April 10th, and this is not your normal episode, as you already recognize. There's no intro music, there's no bumper, there's no ad, there's no anything. Uh, and the reason is because I have met on Twitter Marina Polini, and she is uh, from, I'm going to say this wrong, I, the one thing I should have asked you how to pronounce, is it Don, <laughs> Donbass or Dunbass? Dunbass. Dunbass. Like the boss. she's from don springsteen um (laughs) she is actually from ukraine and she immigrated here with her family when uh, she was uh 12 did you say 12 years old so a few Mm -hmm. years ago she's now a phd student here in the nashville area what's your what's your dissertation going about i don't even know what your subject is (laughs) i just started last summer it's a composition and applied linguistics Oh, so yeah. is Noam Chomsky going to be your, uh, <laughs> your whatever, your overseer? <laughs> uh, no, but I did begin reading him in my master's program. He's definitely an interesting voice to the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Congratulations. So um, I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, I wanted to um, expose uh, uncommentary listeners to a voice uh, that has been in Ukraine, uh, that, that's from the area that's been occupied. And um, so I'm really, really glad uh, that you're, you're able to join me today, Marina. Thank you. It's good to be here. So um, start off with the basics. Uh, you're from Ukraine. So for most Americans, and this won't be any surprise to you, we, we don't even know where it is. We wouldn't know where it is if Putin wasn't dropping bombs on it right now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's helped a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we know that it used to be in the Soviet Union. We know that there's a uh, uh, kind of a real difference in how Ukrainians view Ukraine and themselves and how apparently even the average Russian now views Ukraine and Ukrainians. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that uh, and, and you're growing up and however, however far you want to go into some of that. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I can start with the basics. Uh, Ukraine shares a border with Russia, with Poland, with Belarus, uh, and then it touches the Black Sea. And I am from uh, the region called Donbass, and it's right near the Russian border. So um, many may now know as a result of the news that that is the area that's uh, largely Russian speaking. Mm-hmm. However, uh, funny story, when I went into first grade, that was the very first grade that was allowed to uh, learn um, every subject in Ukrainian in the native language, wow. which is a huge deal. Yeah, because... During the Soviet Union, um, all of the now post-Soviet countries were out, you know, their own native language was outlawed. So Mm -hmm. my mother, who's from the Western Ukraine, speaks fluent, beautiful Ukrainian. And when she's on the phone with her sister, you know, I'm always so jealous of it. And (laughs) it's got a really deeply musical, deeply passionate expression that it's, it's really hard to translate into English. Um, I I mean, you feel you feel free to give us an example, though. Well, that, that would be my mom. She would have to give that example. I, you know, I, I write stories about yeah. it all the time and uh, I'll post it on my blog here and there, just trying to attempt to try yeah. uh, and put it into English for, for myself, for my friends, for whoever is interested in, in yeah. reading it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, talk about, so we're, the Soviet Union had already collapsed when you were born, right? By the time you were born? I was born, born in 88. Um, it had collapsed in 1990 or finished collapsing. Cause I think it started collapsing much sooner. 
yeah. than that. Um, so I, I think, you know, just some years of my life, I don't remember it was yeah. still happening. But my oldest brother, who's now 40, he, he remembers it quite a bit of it. And your parents grew up in that era, correct? Yeah, they grew up. They spent most of their lives. I guess I don't know. I, I, at this point, maybe. No, it is still a majority of their life was in Soviet Union. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you were younger, uh, from the time that you have memory of growing up in, uh, in Donbass, um, wh- did you feel like you were part of Russia? Did you feel like there was this big brother thing going on where there's a shadow cast over the land? Or did you feel like, hey, we're Ukrainian and we have an identity? Talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up in an area that obviously Putin thinks he owns. Yeah, I think because we are from this really tiny village or not village, I'm sorry, small town Mm -hmm. that was born out of the need of a factory. You know, a factory was established and then the town was born as a result. And we are just a bunch of blue collar workers, kind of a bunch of nobodies, really, in the large (laughs) scheme of things. We're we're far away from Moscow. We're far away from Kiev. We're just here, you know bunch of laborers and then the factory closed down and then a lot of the families including my father Mm. were forced to go abroad and work for months at a time to provide for us so my dad would go to germany he'd go to russia and he would do construction so i think from that perspective you know like uh, on the class level we just didn't find um political issues to be of any importance and Mm -hmm. in our region there are a lot of uh russian natives because Mm -hmm. it's such a close proximity my aunt is actually russian um she married my brother's or sorry my my father's brother and uh that's how my dad was able to go back into russia and work through that connection so honestly we didn't think much um the only thing that was very famously kind of understood was that uh russia's the big important decider Mm -hmm. you know and then ukraine is just kind of like yeah, maybe a little brother. I don't know. I, I, as a child, I didn't understand the history of things. And mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't really common to talk about it because I think older generations didn't care to relive the trauma. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't until my teenage years and, and on that I actually started really reading about it and really asking questions and really da- digging deep into it. But that, that's pretty much it. That's the extent of it. As you experience um, growing up and leaving and looking back, I'm, I, I'm assuming you still have friends and or relatives there. Both, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you think there was a real, uh, I'll, I'll say Ukrainian identity, for lack of a better terminology. Uh, when do you think there was a real Ukrainian identity that formed that was like, we're really not ex-Soviets, we're Ukrainians? Uh, Orange Revolution and then um revolution of dignity 2004 and 2014 respectively Mm. Uh, before then uh, every ukrainian knew that the ukrainian government was pretty much ran by kremlin Mm -hmm. to some extent and then as a result of both of those revolutions there was uh, such a massive national awareness of like no we could just be us you know we don't have to be and our resources you know our, our our wheat you know all of the uh beauty and uh i guess yeah resources that's that are available um to ukrainians it doesn't have to be just an extension of russia you know Mm -hmm. this could be us and it could belong to us um that was a really beautiful moment but you know i had to kind of experience it from across the pond (laughs) yeah (laughs) um did you sense so i've seen winter on fire and i've recommended that documentary to anybody that would stand still long enough to pay attention to (laughs) 
Um, and that was, uh, I forget, is it Portachinko? Is that the former president's name? Um, the one that I would have to look it up. I resigned at the end of it. I'm, I know I'm saying it wrong, but the one who was basically, you know, a Russian mm -hmm. might, might as well be a Russian leader in the Ukrainian government. Poroshenko. That right? would be him. Yeah. Yes, that would be him. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wasn't that for a guy that wasn't even looking at the word. That wasn't terrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that happened uh, at the end of the um, Orange Revolution, correct? Is that right? Or is the Revolution of Freedom? Um, the Orange Revolution wasn't as successful. It was okay. more like a, a beginning of awareness and like young people really coming out and doing a lot. It was the, the second one in 2014 that uh, ousted, you know, all of the last re um, remnants of it. It was like between the two revolutions where the actual political awareness was building. Yeah. 2014 was like the final no and get out. So an interesting thing, uh, I went back and watched it again after the invasion <clears throat> and a couple of the guys that were like all over Twitter You'll, you'll know who they are. They're brothers. They were boxers. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think both of them are mayors now, if I'm not mistaken, or at least one of them is for sure. Yeah. One is the mayor of the capital of Ukraine. And so in winter on fire, guess who shows up? This dude is in the, he's in the documentary and mm -hmm. he does not do that. Great. <laughs> at because least he speaks Russian. Is that what it is? Yes. Oh, wow. I just remember. Then, yeah, yeah. There was he learns Ukrainian later. Okay. There was this, so there's this part near the end where he's trying to like broker a deal mm -hmm. and the people are like, nah, we're not going to do that. And you got, dude's got 24 hours to leave. And it was obvious that the mayor, I don't think, I don't know if he's the mayor at the time, but he is now no, he was, he was really set back a little bit. Like he did not expect not to be able to broker that deal. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but apparently, uh, now that he's the mayor, is it Kiev? Is that what he's the mayor? Kiev? Yes. Okay. So apparently there was enough, uh, people maybe saw his heart rather than his actions a little bit mm -hmm. and went on to elect, uh, him as the mayor, um, explain a little bit about what was taking place during, uh, those events and why it became, uh, an actual revolution. Oh my gosh. Um, how to put this succinctly for you. <laughs> I could talk about this for hours. So I think it wasn't just the fact that he was speaking Russian. I don't want to simplify it. Sure. It was just that he was trying to be a diplomat. He was trying to establish some kind of a leadership role, which he ended up doing mm -hmm. later on. And I, I think that the documentary didn't have enough time really to give his yeah. story, the nuance that it needed to. Um, but it really was that the people were, I think he was more of a in-between guy i don't think that he himself felt like he was being uh, or his, his attempt to, to bring the po politicians and mm -hmm. the people together was rejected it was just the fact that the people were not no longer interested in the government or the people who were mm -hmm. uh serving them as, as as their government and um i i kind of wish that they had given it more time and like maybe there will be a documentary about his career because it is so illustrious mm -hmm. um but Ukrainian identity was formed or reshaped, I guess, during that revolution because um, they they said, no, we don't want these people in our government. They came out uh, to Maidan, which is where it was. Mm -hmm. Actually, I went there in 2019. It was Did you really? Really, awesome. really impressive. 
really impressive place to be. Um, I'm sure now it's even more meaningful, but you know, they came out there for weeks and then months. Um, and then because the government kept um, local and, and, and federal, they kept um, bringing more and more violence, basically mm-hmm. the police and the military and then people started dying and then the church got involved by um, helping the protesters. And um, at the end, after all the violence, I think the people said, we're not compromising. And I think that that's really where the spirit of courage yeah. came in, you know, with like, despite the death, despite the fear, everybody just said, we're not compromising, whatever it takes. Like, that's what really gives me so much pride, you know, mm-hmm. in, in where I come from. So um, a few years after that, uh, Russia invades Crimea. Um, explain a little bit about the significance of that, the location. I think a lot of people don't even realize, you know, where it's located and why he would go for that first. Um, and then what it said to you and to Ukrainians that, you know, that basically the world was like, meh. It is more complicated than that. It's <laughs> because my sister-in-law's from Crimea. She recently, <laughs> immigrated here just maybe four or five years ago so i get to see see and hear all these different mm-hmm. point, points of view i mean to, uh, i think crimea from a ukrainian perspective is known as the place that was simply taken from them uh mm-hmm. region that was taken from them simply because putin could you know he could he did yeah. and um a lot of uh Activists in Crimea were present in Maidan during the Revolution of Dignity, and they had been uh, taken prisoner by Russian government. Okay. And then one of them is a, a really important author and filmmaker. He's currently serving for the Ukrainian military. Mm. Um, I'd have to give you his name later. <laughs> I have a whole list of authors <laughs> that are currently writing that I'm following right now. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so he's from Crimea, and he had had been to Maidan, and he'd been really, uh, you know, voicing his um, criticism over Russian government. And he, him and many like him mm-hmm. were taken into custody, and then he, I think, did um, a hunger strike in prison. And he was finally released later on. Uh, but all that to say that um, I think a lot of it has to do with the activists. A lot of it has to do with the fact that it is really conveniently located near the Black Sea mm-hmm. or on the Black Sea. And then from there, uh, you know, the missiles are currently being. Mm-hmm. Um, what's launched. the military term? Launched. launched. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're being launched currently um, against Ukraine. So not only does it give them access into, you know, Black Sea, it's a really convenient place for missile strikes. And then um, just the population there. The history of um, Crimea, too, is that it did used to belong to Russia right. at some point. And then it was given to Ukraine. And now it's supposedly the r- rationale is that we're taking it back. Um, but because of my sister-in-law, I sort of see the nuance. And like, w- what do people of Crimea actually want? They just want someone who can give them a decent life and Mm-hmm. access to food and shelter and you know everyone just wants to live a life that's stable i can't i can't categorically tell you that you know they're all people who want to be ukrainian or they're right. all people who want to be russian it's a lot more nuanced than that so in uh, in the area where you grew up we keep hearing the phrase uh russian backed separatists mm-hmm. so uh, my question is are are these folks 
people who are from Ukraine who spoke Russian, they love Russia and they're okay being part of Russia. Or are these like actual Russian soldiers and uh, KGB agents who infiltrated the country and kind of act like they're from Ukraine or have Ukraine at heart, but, and they're trying to take those areas uh, for Russia. How do you, how do you see that? Or how is that? <laughs> there are people that I also met on Twitter who know more about this, who actually come from um, Donetsk, which is the city that's now occupied since mm -hmm. 2014. Uh, and from what I understand, uh, a lot of the narrative around Donbass and Luhansk, which is another city that was occupied since 2014, is, are the areas where there is largely Russian-speaking populations. And according to Kremlin, you know, um, they wanted to be part of Russia, and so they were liberated. Mm -hmm. um, now, all these years later, it's known to be largely propaganda. Mm -hmm. Most people who are in those places, again, are just regular people who want to live a stable life. They want to feed their children and have careers and have a home. It's not necessarily so politicized where mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of people going to the city center and saying, give us to Russia. We don't want to be Ukrainian. None of that is really present. It's just... Mm -hmm. They were occupied by military. Um, a lot of chaos was happening. Uh, from what I understand, firsthand accounts, um, <laughs> and this is sounds kind of like fictional because it feels like something I saw in the movie. But from what I hear, <laughs> there were people with truck, like trucks with guns, and then whoever wanted to volunteer to fight on behalf of it, they're like, "Okay, here's a gun. Here's you man this checkpoint, and then." Just make sure that the cars passing through here are, you know, check their documents, you know, mm -hmm. for surveillance purposes. Mm -hmm. The chaos of it was just, let's just give a bunch of people guns. And if some violence happens, we can just blame it on Ukraine. And then we mm -hmm. can build a narrative around that. So whatever style of political action you want to call that, that's what that was. <laughs> so now the, uh, the invasion is kind of full scale and, um, uh, something like a million Ukrainians have, have uh, gone to the West uh, to escape. And I read that, uh, I don't know, like 40,000 or maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was not 400,000, maybe it was a hundred thousand, but some large number of men had already returned. So they basically had taken their families, gotten them established and now they've returned to join uh, one, one or other of the military efforts. Um, does that surprise you that, mm -mm. That, that so many came back? No, not at all. Why not? Uh, I think Ukrainian people and Ukrainian men are just, there is a love that I think, a love for the country, a love for the land that's hard to explain. Mm. I don't want to get too sentimental because, you know, I tend to. <laughs> well, if it fits, I mean, that's fine. Yeah, um, especially because I think Zelensky really stood up to the challenge as a leader. And a lot of, you know, he started out as a comedian. Right. And so a lot of people, when he became a president, laughed him off. They yeah. said, this is a joke. And, you know, they felt disrespected that somebody in, co in comedy wanted to enter their politics, especially such a young, you know, thriving mm. nation. And so now that he took the stand and he just become a symbol of what it means to like really love and care and stand up for your people and for your, for your, for your land. Um, that, that does a lot, I think, to a country. And I, I even have a, a, one of my best friends who's still in that bus, actually she and her children are now 
in Western Ukraine. Her husband's in Donbass. Mm. He's had countless uh, opportunities to leave and go to Germany because he's got family in Germany. And he has just relentlessly said, no, we're staying. This is where the roots are. This is where the family is. This is where our home is. And um, that's just that's just what it is. Wow. Um, Were you surprised at uh, Zelensky as a wartime president? Did you expect him to like hop on the next Greyhound and head toward uh, Poland? I didn't have time to be surprised. I think I was too busy watching um, Putin's live streams. Mm. And then, you know, uh, minutes before the first airstrike, I was watching him and I was listening to his rhetoric in Russian and just like my the blood, you know, in my body just going cold. And I'm just... Mm freezing in mm. horror because i again i'm feeling like this is i'm in some movie this doesn't feel yeah. real like i can't believe that this is allowed um and then uh, the, everything else from after that went on to happen so quickly and i just then would tune in and watch Zelensky, and it was like okay things can be okay things can be calm things could be mm-hmm fine because he would just reassure i'm sure like countless others you know millions of others yeah um so no i didn't have time to be surprised i really love that phrase you know i don't need a ride i need more weapons that was amazing (laughs) (laughs) because everyone else was like from europe come on we'll get you you know a helicopter a chopper it's like don't need a ride (laughs) um so there is a such thing as the fog of war where, you know, information gets weird and, uh, you know, reports are made and they're later found out to be incorrect or whatever, but it's, it's reached the point that the reports of atrocities, uh, committed by the Russian army. I mean, there's so many and so pervasive and, and in so many areas now it's, it's almost impossible to to just discount them all as some kind of propaganda from Ukraine to make everybody mad at Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, the people that you're talking to that are back back home or the people that are close to people still there, is it about what we're reading? Is it worse than what we're reading? It's worse. Really? It's worse. Wow. It's worse. Um, yeah. I, it's hard to talk about that, uh, but it is much worse. I know that what's being reported, especially in the States, is just uh, minimal compared to the horror. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying that as a Ukrainian. I'm saying that as a person who learns about information <laughs> and sure you know it i follow a lot of uh, ukrainian journalists who are on the ground mm-hmm. my own cousin who is also an american citizen she flew out and she's a um, volunteer who's also a professional photographer so mm-hmm. a lot of the things that you know she's reporting back just as a, a family member and a professional herself it's i don't see that on the news you know i don't wow. see that uh, in the newspapers. Um, but it's hard to, it's hard to watch the horror of the war 24 seven, uh, on the news cycle. So I understand why viewers don't want to be overcome with it all the time. It's hard. Did you say that was your sister, the photographer, my cousin, your cousin, is she on Twitter? Uh, she's not, she's on Instagram and, uh, I'm sure other visual platforms I, I can give you her tag yeah do you, do you know it by heart like can you just say it because i'll follow her <laughs> yeah oh, it's just her name alina tulu which is going to be really funny to spell lots of whys <laughs> but i'll i'll give it to you okay yeah um so what do you want what would you want people to do 
in this situation, not, not Ukrainians. They're, they're doing everything they can do. Um, we have a pastor friend who is in Kiev and, uh, his fan, he's got a, a wife and a son and a daughter, and they were all there for the first, uh, maybe even month of, uh, of the invasion. And I think it was, I mean, they were even there when the bombings were taking place near Kiev uh, and their windows were, you know, blowing in and out. But I think it was after the reports of the atrocities started surfacing, uh, that his wife and son and daughter, he put them on a, you know, on a bus and sent them to the, to the border and he stayed behind. I, I don't know that he's, um, I think he's actually just, I, ju, I don't want to say just, I think he's actually ministering to people who are hurting. They're trying to provide physical needs to people and, uh, and provide evacuation opportunities for people. Uh, but he's not in the military is what I was going to say before I in, unintentionally downplayed what he is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very important what he's doing, but his family had already, had already gone. So I was just, uh, I, I'm just thinking about all of these people who can't get a, get a ride out. Um, these horrible stories that are coming out involving women and children and torture and just the worst things that you can think of happening in war, happening to people who are not even involved in the fighting. Um, what do you, as a former Ukrainian, still Ukrainian at heart, obviously, uh, want people to know, what do you want people to do in response to all of this? Yeah. Um, my heart is with the refugees. Uh, many of the mothers, children, uh, the elderly, disabled people who are hoping to come back one day. Mm. Or just people who are, again, trying to n- n- make ends meet. Um, there are so many credible grassroots organizations that are working on the ground level to deliver um food, supplies, medicine, you know, a lot of people are not able to survive just because they don't have uh, insulin, you know, Mm -hmm. things that are, we take for granted uh, when we don't have war. So uh, one organization that I support and I actually partner with um, is, was started by a family, no, a friend whose family attended the same church that we did in Ukraine. (laughs) They immigrated. I love those connections. (laughs) Yes. They, we, we went to summer camp together, you know, we all oh, wow. grew up okay. together. He was my, my, one of my brother's close friend, but uh, he, they immigrated to Germany in 2014 when the um, occupation first began. And he and his brother and his father have started um, uh, this organization to help support, you know, other um, refugees. And so mm-hmm. he himself is a re- refugee. He himself started the organization. They bought some buses. They, they are constantly, um, going out and purchasing food and, you know, Mm -hmm. medicine, like I said, whatever it is that's needed. And they get on the bus, uh, you know, the bus that they Mm -hmm. purchase and they drive through Ukraine and they hand out the um, aid to people. And this is such a small organization, just three or four buses, like six or seven guys. And they just go out there and that's just what they do. They get on the bus, they bring the supplies and then they bring people back. And then they help them find a home. And they also find through a connection of churches in Germany, um, get them shelter. So it's like, mm. they don't just put them on a bus and say, okay, good luck mm-hmm. to you. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. the government will help you. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm weary of organizations like Red Cross, you know, when, when it, things get so large, it's really yeah. hard to stay accountable. Um, yeah. Like, am I paying for an office somewhere or am I paying for exactly. someone to actually get yeah. aid? And because I know this, 
individual and have grown up with their family. And I know that they go back home every time they take the bus to that region. Yeah. Um, I'm just always trying to plug, you know, mm-hmm. the little poster I made in English. Everything he makes is in German. You know, I'm like, I'll make one in English for you. <laughs> I'm translating as much as I can. Just like, I cannot stress enough how much um, organizations that are on the ground doing the work from 2014, you know, they, they've been doing it. They know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the, that's where the need is. That's where we can support them. And if we can't be on, you know, boots on the ground, mm-hmm. then we can at least uh, support them who are. Well, if you'll give me the, uh, the name and a website or whatever, uh, I'll put it yeah. in the show notes and anybody that is listening, you can drop down there and find it. Sounds great. Along with the Instagram handle for, uh, Alina Tulu. Marina's cousin. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What, uh, I, we're probably going to be out of time here in a second because I've got the freebie version of Zoom. Um, is there anything you want to say as we, uh, as we get ready to close? First of all, I want to, obviously, I want to thank you for hanging out. Um, mm-hmm. What is your Twitter handle? Yazavtra. That's <laughs> in Russian because that's my, you know, a native tongue, really, even though it's... Uh, kind of a bastard native tongue yeah uh it means i'll do it tomorrow like a okay. procrastination yeah movie. yeah <laughs> so at procrastinator is your uh, <laughs> yeah, twitter yeah. handle yeah. uh and no it's at m-a-r something right um, i can't remember tell you're gonna have to spell it because i really don't remember what it is your twitter handle you don't remember either <laughs> did i change it i, I, I don't know so because now you, i have to go and check because I think your your name on there only comes up as like M A R or something oh, like that. Oh yeah, yeah. So my handle is Yasafra, like I said, but my short name is Mar for Marina. Okay, okay. For you're gonna need to spell forward. the at part at what? <laughs> okay, um, at Y A Z A V T R A. Okay, and then your blog, uh, your URL for your blog is what? Oh, that one is tougher because it's also the free version, but it's uh, Yazaftra, just like my Twitter, dot Wixsite.com. Okay. And that's linked from your Twitter profile, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right that's how front. I found it. So I should have known better. Uh-huh. Well, cool. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much. And uh, you guys that are listening, you really need to go to Marina's Twitter feed and look at her pinned tweet because uh, she tells a story there and I don't know, like 10 or 15 tweets or something like that. Uh, and it got a lot of traction a couple of weeks ago. That's actually how I found you. Yeah. And so um, I really appreciate your time. And um, anytime that you want to come back, you just let me know. All right. Thank you so much. It's been great being here with you guys.